Hello again, music lovers. Welcome to episode two of Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent playlist. I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. We're a couple of uh, 50-something music fans, most of our adult lives in the entertainment industry, and we're here to talk music, 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 because that's in our minds constantly. And uh, the theme of the show, we're going to be building a playlist for our peers, uh, musical memories, the soundtrack of our lives, our meaning uh, Generation X, 50-somethings, late 40-somethings. By the time we're done with this thing, who knows when that will be, we'll have a great big list of songs that could be played at a gathering, a reunion, who knows, anywhere that uh, old folks gather <laughs> and, <laughs> old folks. and have a good time. We're old folks. We are old. We're officially I guess, old. I guess so. Yeah. Although we're, we're going to be talking so. about all kinds of music related stuff on these uh, episodes, even new music that's turning us on. Now, uh, episode one, if you haven't caught it yet, we started our playlist. We picked one song from the year 1972. These earliest episodes, we're going to be talking about earliest musical memories, the music from our earliest uh, childhood period, the first songs that piqued an interest in us or that we noticed or mom and dad played around the house or sneaked through and saw on television. Uh, so our first song was uh, American Pie by Don McLean, a big song in 1972, although it was released late in 71 and uh, still resonates to this day. One of the biggest hits of all time, as a matter of fact. Now, we're picking two songs for the year 1973 today, and one of those is actually closely related to Don McLean. Quite a story behind that song. The other one uh, certainly has nothing to do with Don McLean, but uh, it kind of falls in the vein of something that's near and dear to both Cheryl and I, and that's the, the, the goofy, fun, light, AM pop hits of the 70s. Although uh, this one, maybe not one of our personal favorites, but it was a massive worldwide hit, number one in the US and UK for a month each. Uh, so we'll be uh, adding those two songs to the playlist. Uh, before we move on, 1973, we're going to put a bow on 72. Now we picked American Pie for our first track, but Cheryl, you and I, if we were to pick a, a personal favorite song from 72 or album, it wouldn't have been that one, uh, although it's a great one, uh, American Pie. Uh, for me personally, 72 was the year of Ziggy Stardust to the Spiders from Mars, David Bowie, which is my favorite album for a long period of my life, probably starting latter college years and uh, continuing up into, geez, until fairly recently, I would say that was my favorite all-time rock and roll album, even though I wouldn't consider Bowie even close to one of my favorite artists. That particular record really resonated. It's just a, a, a perfectly formed uh, conceit, uh, an, an idea, and uh, yeah. a soundtrack to an idea, and just great, uh, uh, exhilarating rock and roll music uh, that that still sounds pretty fresh to this day to me. So it that does. that would and the that whole album be, all the yeah. way through is amazing. It's definitely been one of my top albums of all time, and still is. I mean, it's in the top ten, I'd say. And with with each passing year, I think David Bowie is recognized more and more as a just a, a titan. Hugely influential musician. Of course, his career went through many changes, twists and turns. That's kind of what he was known for more than anything else was his uh, chameleonic persona that would change every couple of years or so. Uh, but my, my favorite Bowie is definitely the, the Spiders from Mars era, which would encompass the albums. Well, kind of starting with Man Who Sold the World, although he didn't have the full band. Uh, he had Mick Ronson playing guitar on their record. Uh, but really, uh, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane yeah. uh, was the, 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 the core of that era. And that's my favorite Bowie music. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that that was one that I had 
in the running for my favorite album from 72. Um, there's so many great albums that came out that year. And a lot of them are kind of, you know, in my adult life had become, became really important to me. Like Ziggy Stardust, uh, Nick Drake, Pink Moon came out that year. Yes, Close to the Edge, Big Star, number one record, T-Rex the Slider. You know, there's there's some amazing music that came out that year. But album that I chose for that year actually is Carpenter's A Song For You. Because I have so many memories of sitting in our living room with our big stereo that's a piece of furniture you know when you open up the the speakers and you flip down the turntable and you know singing along with the me with Karen Carpenter who of course had an amazing voice not yeah, I can't singer. sing but amazing voice and so the that album really is something that just stands out in my mind as as a big influence as a kid um it wasn't 72 when I was listening to that because you know I was only three but it probably wouldn't have been more like about 76 77 that it was it was a big album for me and honestly there could have been carpenter's music played in my house when i was that age uh, certainly no david bowie was being played <laughs> around the record house no all the way. Night, <laughs> in 1972 although yeah. american pie for sure my dad was a don mclean fan i would have heard that song right around the time it came out song for 72 best song in 72 uh, uh american pie would be right up there for me but not number one i i at the, and again it depends on when you ask me Right now, I'd have to say Superstition by Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder. And 72 was really the start of this amazing run for Stevie Wonder, who'd been a Motown artist for a decade. He was signed when he was preteen. He was this musical prodigy, blind kid who could play multiple instruments, sing incredibly well, dance, what have you, record a bunch of Motown albums in their factory system. But then once he became 21, he and his lawyers renegotiated. They got a new contract that gave him almost complete control of his musical output. And he started putting out these incredible albums that were uh, almost entirely self-recorded. Uh, Music of My Mind was the first. The, the, the big breakthrough was Talking Book, and on that was the song Superstition, which he actually wrote, uh, intending to give it to Jeff Beck to record. And then I think he realized it was too good to, to give away. They both did end up recording it. Um, uh, I, I can't remember who's came out first. I think Stevie's came out first. Jeff Beck recorded it as part of the Beck Bogart and a Peace uh, album in 73. which is a heavy, heavy rock album, instrumental version. Stevie's version, incredible track, uh, just driving, rocking, hard funk track. Uh, if you listen closely, there's all sorts of things going on, both with that and with higher ground on the following album, Intervisions. I mean, everybody recognizes the the riff, the, the clavinet basis for the song, but you listen closely with headphones, you realize it's like four keyboard tracks interweaving with each other with just intricate rhythm and and uh, impossible funk. I mean, it's, a, it's yeah, an incredible yeah. musical experience. It sounds amazing. Uh, I've been listening to the uh, the original Musicquarium Stevie Wonder album. It's a greatest hits to this set. Four sides of a vinyl record on each side. He had a new song. It was released in the early 80s. And then uh, his like his greatest hits from the 70s. And then the Hotter in July album, which came out in 80, 81, I can't remember. Beautifully sequenced album, not chronological, just well put together. And what really the best sounding Stevie Wonder you're going to find if you get it on CD. It's uh, one of the few times he's allowed his original master tapes to be used in a reissue of his music. And it just sounds great, um, particularly the Inner Visions tracks on there. Just, <laughs> just really pop. 
But uh, yeah, I'd have to, uh, Stevie Wonder, probably the artist of the decade and superstition would be my pick for 72. My pick is actually Nielsen Without You. Big hit in 72. Big, Big hit, hit in 72. was number one for four weeks. Actually, a cover song, which I don't know, a lot of people might not know that, but it was it was originally written by Peter Hamm and Tom Evans of Badfinger and released on their album, No Dice, in 1970. and uh, was never released as a single. And their version is actually, it does sound a lot different. I mean, it's number one, Nielsen's vocals. It's one of the most amazing vocal performances I think ever recorded. And when you hear the Badfinger version, the biggest difference is in the chorus. When they sing the chorus, it's just kind of a staccato, I can't live if living is without yep. you. Yep. Where Nielsen's version, I mean, first of all, it starts out with this like melancholy piano and you're already getting this impression of like, you know, this sad, lonely guy. And as the song goes on and gets to the chorus, you know, it starts to build and then you get to that sweeping, I can't live, that just goes on and on. And it's it's amazing. I mean, it brings yeah. it lifts the song Beautiful up song. to a level yeah. that's just beyond anything that I'm sure they even imagined when they were when they originally recorded it. And it's also one of those songs that just has continued to go on and on. And you know, you still hear it now. And I really think it will Mariah always Carey be. had a big hit with it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In the nineties. And, you know, I mean, people, young people now know the song still. And I think that it just, it's a, it's one of those songs that'll just continue to carry on because it really is such a great performance. Yeah. He was a wonderful vocalist, uh, a fine songwriter, although, uh, yeah. ironically his biggest hits were written by others. That's true. But, uh, everybody's talking a Fred Neal song. That was his breakthrough mm-hmm. hit 69 on Midnight the soundtrack. Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. And then without you would be the other one. Um, although he did have some other, you know, you know, one that really, a lot of people look at it as just this fluffy novelty track, but, uh, the song coconut, what a yeah. great, what a great <laughs> track. I mean, it, it's a showcase for my favorite drummer, Jim Gordon, uh, just, oh, it's yeah. just a, a percussion masterclass. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh really interesting track um but nielsen was huge in 70 the nielsen schmilson album came out in 72 big big record for him yeah um, his biggest record and that's the album that without you was featured on yeah yeah and if kind of fascinating character too kind of it kind of came out of the straight world he was worked at a bank he was a computer programmer got into music a little later although he had gifts a gifted vocalist gifted composer and just uh uh, uh, interesting personality. Liked to have himself a little fun. Harry Nielsen did. Of course, he was notorious for partying, yeah, partying with John Lennon during his last weekend at Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr. Yeah, definitely uh, big in the uh, nightlife scene in L.A. You'd see him on the award shows and usually in a humorous setting. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the Beatles really opened the door for him. They cited him, uh, like multiple Beatles cited him as their favorite artists. Uh, yeah, like in before anybody, they, yeah, before anybody yeah. ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. And then, they said their favorite yeah. American band was Nielsen. I don't even think they knew that it was he was a person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or just a single artist. And yeah. So there is a big Beatle connection there. And there's also, you know, a big Beatle connection with Badfinger because they recorded on Apple. Paul McCartney wrote their first hit single, Come and Get It. You know, he there were connections there within the Beatle community that he became familiar with without you, probably through that. And a guy who rarely throughout his entire career, rarely performed live. Yeah. Almost all studio stuff. 
so yeah, so Nilsson, uh, with Without You, uh, Stevie Wonder, Superstition, and then the uh, album's uh, Carpenters, A Song for You, and then uh, Ziggy Stardust and Spiders of Mars. So that, those are our favorites from 72. Uh, again, you're listening to uh, Matt and Cheryl's An Excellent Playlist. Uh, we're going to be picking two songs from 73 on this episode. Before we do that, though, Cheryl, what what have you been spinning lately? Uh, what's what's been uh, what's been turning you on musically lately since we last spoke? Well, I like to go on to the All Music Guide, which is an online database of artist bands albums. It's like a review site, and on there you can go to similar albums if you're reading a particular album, and it will bring up other albums that are similar to the one that you're looking at. And so I was doing that and I came across this album. I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. All I know is that it was like a four and a half star album. So I thought, well, what is this? I better check it out. It came out in 1972. It's an artist named John Congos with a K. Yep. K-O-N-G-O-S. The K-O-N-G-O-S. The album is called Congos. So I put it on and first of all, the first song, I'm just like, what is this? It starts out with this tribal beat and it's got this like really cool guitar riff that comes in. And it's one of those songs where I'm like, why haven't I ever heard this? Where's the song been all my life? <laughs> it's just so cool. Um, it's called Tokoloshi Man. It sort of reminds me of Tusk. You know, the song Tusk yep, by Fleetwood yep. Mac. It mm-hmm. has that sort of dr- that driving rhythm. And then but then it's got this like really cool guitar riff that comes in. that feels kind of Mark Bolin ish. And I was just like instantly captivated by this song. You know, I'm like, this is this is really cool. So then I keep going and listening to the album. Then it kind of turns to have this real Elton John feel to it. That era, his albums like, you know, uh, Mad Mad Across the Water, Tumbleweed Connection, Hon- Honky Chateau. Yep. So it feels very similar to those albums. And so I start reading the liner notes and I realize that it's produced by Gus Dudgeon, who also produced the Elton John albums and David Bowie's Space Oddity. So I'm like, okay, well, this makes sense now. Anyway, going through the whole album, the songs are great. It it feels Elton John-ish. It's got the piano, but it has more of a rock and guitar with it too. And actually, he's using Elton John's backing band for those albums too. So also makes even more sense as to why they are and very similar El- in sound. Oh, that a great band behind him too. Yeah. Yeah. So then you get to the end and the last song is called He's, He's going to step, step on you on again. you again. Love the title. Once again, you get this tribal African beat that comes in. He John Congos is from, from South Africa. Yep. Um and it's like a loop, like a it is like an actual African beat loop and very similar similar to the first song to Tokoloshi Man. It's got that that driving rhythm and then the really cool guitar riff and the chorus that just kind of like also once again is very Mark Bolan-esque to me comes in with this sort of repetitive chorus that go, sort of goes on and on. But another amazing song. And I had no idea that song was actually a top 10 hit in Britain and it was a it was a top one hundred hit in the US too. But top 40. I never you made heard the top forty, I believe. Yeah. No, it nope. only made it to like seventy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I had never heard of it. I had no idea this existed. I I'm sure that Matt, you've heard of it, the song. Oh, yeah. yeah. And know the um, song. Well, uh a certain group of guys from Manchester certainly heard the song and uh they took it 
and did their own version of it called just called Step On. That was Happy Mondays. This was the whole Mad Chester scene in the late 80s, early 90s that brought in dance beats and combined with rock music. It was uh, popular mainly in the UK. Uh, Happy Mondays never had hits here. That whole scene didn't really impact the charts here so much, except, you know, maybe among college students. But uh, yeah, no, I uh, I became aware of John Congas from the uh, Rubiat collection, which came out when you and I, Cheryl, worked at the Northgate uh, branch of Silver Platters. And th- those of you who don't know us, uh, I work in radio. I've worked in music retail, more mainly a sports guy in radio, but I've done music radio as well. Cheryl and her husband, Mike, uh, co-own a chain of uh, uh, record stores, Puget Sound area called Silver Platters. But before you and Mike owned it, uh, you were employees of Silver Platters. Mike is the corporate buyer, and uh, we both worked in the Northgate branch, one of four uh, branches at that time. And they would have been a CD only store at that point in the late 80s, early 90s. But this Rubiot collection came out on Electra Records. Uh, cool idea where they had current Electra artists covering Electra Records songs for the past. And that was one of them. Happy Mondays did. Their version of Tokoloshi, man. And of course, they had their hit uh, uh, on their own album with Step On. That album uh, was key for me because it it introduced me to the band Love, uh, a a band I was aware of but didn't know their music. But Billy Bragg did a cover of Seven and Seven Is on that album and a pretty faithful cover at that. I mean, Billy Bragg, kind of a a folk artist out of Britain, but this is a rage and rock track. Yeah. Um, and it may be very curious to check out the original. And I eventually got a love compilation a couple years down the road, fell, fell in love with love their first three records in particular, though I'm starting right. to discover their albums after that initial run, uh, which are worthy as well. But yeah, this uh, Ruby out uh, 1990, I think it came out two disc set current electro artists covering electro songs for the past. And, uh, that's where I became aware of John Cong. But yeah, I, I eventually mm-hmm. heard the original version. And you could yeah. see that, I mean, it sounded like little else on the radio at that time. It really jumped out of the speakers. And I think it's been cited as perhaps the first example of sampling in popular mm-hmm. music. Yeah, apparently in the Guinness Book of World Records, it's listed as the first example of sampling. Yeah, yeah. The, the tribal drums of which you uh, refer. Yeah. But yeah, real cool sounding record. Now, I've, I haven't listened to the Um, But I will definitely check it out on your recommendation, Cheryl, for sure. Now, I've also been listening to music of that era, in particular, Curtis Mayfield, uh, who released his biggest record in 72. That was the soundtrack to Superfly. Big hit for Curtis Mayfield. Multiple songs, multiple singles off that hit the charts, including the title track, um, Freddy's Dead. And then probably my favorite track on the album called Pusher Man was a lesser hit. But uh, Curtis was a veteran artist at this point. He'd been in a group called The Impressions. He was their lead vocalist, uh, primary composer, and a guitar player. It's a three-man vocal group. Sam Gooden and Fred Cash were the other two. Uh, They had a bunch of hits in the 60s. Around the middle of the decade, Curtis's writing started to get more topical and political, dealing with the civil rights movement, uh, trouble in the ghettos, uh, the the black man's struggle for equality. He his best known, best loved song was uh, probably uh, "People Get Ready," uh, which came out in '65, which became one of the civil rights anthems. And then he decided to go solo at the end of the decade. Uh, the The impression songs, a lot of them were pretty immaculately produced with these beautiful arrangements by a guy named Johnny Pate, strings, horns, and the whole bit. 
not all of them, but a lot of them. He took a different direction. He's going to more on a heavy funk trip, but still a lot of the songs were orchestrated by Johnny Pate, and beautifully so. His first solo record called Curtis came out in 1970. Followed that up with an album called, well, actually a live album came out after that. That's what I've been listening to a lot in the last week or so, is the live album, which was recorded at the Bitter End Nightclub in New York uh, shortly after he went solo. Uh, that was a double record, a double album. And then Roots, which was kind of a heavier uh, heavier, more psychedelic soul album. Uh, that one I'm going to need to listen to some more. I've really only listened to it closely start to finish once, and it was, ooh, whoa, heavier than I was expecting. Then Superfly, which was his big breakout, and then after that, 73, Back to the World, which uh, I don't think Johnny Pate was so much involved in that one. Again, it's a little more stripped back. All of these albums are great. Curtis Mayfield's music, particularly in the last few years, I think has really resonated with all the trouble we've seen in this country with the division, with the Black Lives Movement um, and all of that stuff. His music still rings loud and clear. He dealt with a lot of difficult topics straightforwardly, but his personality was such that it went down easy. He was a real peaceful, kind of gentle soul, real soft-spoken, thoughtful guy. They call him the gentle genius. That was one of his nicknames. Um, it, it, this is kind of funny. In my head, for some reason, I, I start thinking gentle giant. And then you see pictures. Uh, there's tons of performance footage on YouTube, by the way, and a great documentary that has a lot of live performance clips in full, start to finish, all the songs. Very much worth watching. About two hours long, you can find it on YouTube. Um, Curtis Mayfield was not a giant. He was a tiny little fella. <laughs> uh, great guitarist. Sang most of his stuff in a in a falsetto register. Beautiful singer, uh, gentle soul, uh, and really important in the black community at that time. Uh, part in, in the black movement, uh, cited as a real leader at that time. And uh, his run of albums there in the early seventies, from Curtis to Back to the World, fantastic, great music, moving lyrics, and. Although it's 50 years old, it still resonates loudly to this day for me and for many others, I think. I know uh, Curtis Mayfield I would have been aware of, um, probably starting with the cover of People Get Ready by Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. That yeah, came out, I recognize that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Came out in the mid-80s. That yeah. would probably have been the first time I would have been aware of his name. Yeah. Um, and then in the 90s, the uh, Beastie Boys put out their second album, Paul's Boutique. I wasn't a big Beastie Boys fan when License to Ill came out. Paul's Boutique was a whole different ballgame. Uh, incredible album. And one of the one of the greatest examples of sampling in rap music. An album you couldn't make today. Now, this is before you had to get, you know, uh, clearance for all this. I mean, they sampled the Beatles and Led Zeppelin yeah. Yeah. and all this kind of stuff on there. But right. uh, the track Eggman was the one that really jumped out for me on that record because of the bass line, which is lifted right from Superfly. It's the Superfly bass line. Boom, 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 boom. And I was like, whoa, what? I had to know what that was and found out that that came from Curtis Mayfield. And it was still many years down the road before I really started listening to his music, but uh, worth the wait. Incredible catalog. Really incredible. A very prolific guy. I mean, he was not only cranking all these impressions albums and his solo records, but in the early 70s, he did multiple movie soundtracks. He wrote hit songs for others. Uh, he started his own label, his own publishing company. Uh, another guy who had his business stuff together, wanted to make sure that he was in control of his 
of his career and his likeness and his image and his music. And there's a lot, uh, there's still a lot of stuff out there. I've not, I've got the Curtis Mayfield, the impressions multi-disc collection there. That's waiting to be listened to, but uh, just a phenomenal catalog. Unfortunately, he left us young. He had a freak accident at a concert in 1990 while performing in Brooklyn, a outdoor show, a lighting rig blew down and fell on him in the wind and made him a quadriplegic. And he started to go downhill health wise. He did record mm, one yeah. more album, um, which had to be quite an endeavor uh, for somebody in his condition called new world order. And I've never listened to that, but it got good reviews when it came out in the nineties. And then he passed away from complications of diabetes before the decade was out just in his early fifties, but uh, left us a lot, a lot of great music and a positive message. I, I really only listened to the Curtis album and just the first song on that album. Mm-hmm. Don't that, worry. If that's there's a, a hell below, we're all going to go. That And that had to be a real, I mean, for impressions fans, I mean, a lot yeah. of the music was really beautiful uh, mm-hmm. and uplifting. Then to hear this dark, dark, I mean, the way that starts. The way it starts. That yeah. He- super heavy fuzz bass. And these freaky, echoey voices in the background. Niggas, niggas, niggas. Whiteys, whiteys, whiteys. Crackers. This is funny. So uh, I I was just becoming a Curtis fan and uh, working in local sports here in the Portland area. I I would often do uh, PA, like high school sporting events. And I would play the music. I put that on. I I the uh, I just happened to have the Curtis the greatest hits album with me. I put that yeah. track on at a baseball game at Tigard, and it started playing. I was like, "Oh my god, what have I done?" <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I mean, uh, nobody said anything. Nobody Thank noticed. God, <laughs> I didn't. Nobody noticed. But wow, that's wow. not a, not appropriate for that setting no. at all. Uh, I mean, no. killer killer song. Oh um, wow! So but. I can only Powerful. imagine what uh, uh, longtime fans of his and the impressions thought when they first heard that track. It's like, yeah. oh my God, what what path is our boy going down here? Uh, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a heavy, haunting, haunting yep. track. It is, yeah. But then yep. you've got Moving On Up, which was mm-hmm. basically taken wholesale by Kanye West on his second album. But, but yeah, that Curtis album, and that Curtis album actually came out before Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I mean, really a landmark soul album in dealing with topical stuff. I imagine it's probably gotten more recognition as time has gone on, you know, like in, yeah. the, in the more yeah. current times. Than it was kind of, kind of got mixed when reviews it when it came out initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas What's Going On, glowing reviews from the very, yeah. it's considered a landmark classic from when it was released. Not really the case with, with Curtis. It's only really getting its due, I think, in recent years. He said... Uh, I mean, a lot of musicians citing him as influential and uh, trumpeting his genius. And yeah, I mean, I, I've not listened to any of his stuff post uh, Back to the World. The, the disco era came in and he didn't really fit that style so much. He tried uh, to get into the disco era, but uh, yeah, he continued to write and produce for others. He had a wonderful career uh, and unfortunately ended all too soon just in freakish circumstances. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, so that's uh, old Curtis, not just lately, but really the last couple, three years. Been really uh, playing that quite often. All right, so we're, we're about halfway in here. Time to uh, jump into uh, our playlist and get our next songs on there. 
So as I said, episode one, by the way, this is Matt Cheryl's Gen X La Playlist. Um, episode one, we, we put the first song on our playlist, Don McLean's American Pie. Now, Don McLean, as we mentioned, episode one, really a, a great performer, moving performer, uh, lyrics that have touched a lot of people, good guitar player, beautiful vocalist. Any of the live clips you find on YouTube, it'll be quite apparent what a strong performer he was. Well, he, as American Pie was climbing the charts in 1971 and early 72, a young lady, folk singer from Los Angeles, a teenager by the name of Lori Lieberman, went to his show at the Troubadour and was so moved that she started scribbling notes furiously on a napkin, kind of poetic, almost lyrical notes about how this one song in particular affected her and moved her emotionally. Lori Lieberman, cute, blonde, blue-eyed folk singer from Los Angeles. She'd been signed to a management deal by a pair of songwriters uh, named Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel. They they were, uh, you know, a lyricist and music writer who wanted to write songs, but find an artist that they could develop their career and have them perform their music. And uh, obviously get a share of the proceeds in the bargain. And Lori Lieberman signed a deal with them. Uh, she was the first to record their song, Killing Me Softly, with his song, which was allegedly uh, inspired by Lori Lieberman seeing Don McLean in concert. She wrote these notes called uh, I believe it was Gimbel was the lyricist, told her about this show, uh, kind of read her notes. He had a song title idea that he'd written called Killing Me Softly with His Blues. Kind of matched that to what she was telling him. And then they changed blues to song just because it sounded more contemporary. He wrote the lyrics, gave them to Fox, who wrote the music. She recorded it on her debut album, which came out in 72, recorded in late 71. Album went nowhere, song went nowhere. Roberta Flack picked up on it. Roberta Flack was uh, a middle-aged woman who was a nightclub performer in Washington, D.C., and a school teacher as her day job. Classically trained musician, went to Howard University. Gosh, got a scholarship to uh, Howard University in uh, Washington, D.C., which is a historically black college. Just 15 years old, got a scholarship. Came in as a piano major, switched to voice, graduated at 19. Started playing nightclubs in the D.C. area, got a job as a school teacher, junior high school teacher, and started building up a following for these performances in Washington, D.C. Uh, started becoming one of those local attractions that touring musicians would say, oh, you got to go check her out. And then eventually got scouted, signed to Atlantic Records, recorded her first album in 1969. It was called First Take. Joel Dorn, who was a jazz producer, was kind of in charge of her stuff on Atlantic. And she recorded a couple of albums before Clint Eastwood picked up on a song from that first album, asked permission to use it in a movie that he directed called Play Misty for Me, which came out in 1971. And then because of that, the song, first time I ever I saw your face, took off, became a massive hit, was actually technically the biggest hit of 1972. It wasn't American Pie. It was that. Uh, it was record of the year at the 1973 Grammys. And then uh, all of a sudden she goes from being this unknown kind of local attraction, uh, mid thirties at this point in her life to being a, a huge star, a uh, pop star. So 73, she releases uh, the, the killing me softly album. And then this song takes off, becomes a massive hit. And that in turn became record of the year at the next Grammy Awards. So she won two consecutive 
Record of the Year Grammys and Killing Me Softly, one of the best-selling songs of 73. Now, it's interesting, the drama behind this, because these guys, Fox and Gimbel, much older. Lori Lieberman was a teenager when they signed her up. Immediately, Gimbel, who's 43 and married, starts a sexual relationship with her, carrying on this affair. Um, And then things, of course, eventually go sour a few years later. She tries to get out of the contract. They get lawyers involved. They want a piece of her life for, you know, perpetuity afterwards. And the experience was so negative, traumatic. She left music for a long period of time, eventually got back in it, start recording again, doing interviews. And she'd written a song that kind of detailed how she felt she was exploited by this guy. And she was, okay. He's 43 and married. She's a teen. Gimbal got irate about it. And then next thing you know, so this song that had been inspired by Don McLean via Lori Lieberman, and she was considered you know, integral in the creation of this song, although she was refused writing credit for it at the time. Now Fox and Gimbel, even though her name was never on the credits, she's being cited as practically the third songwriter. These guys, probably protecting future interests, start to say, well, no, uh, it's an urban legend. Uh, somewhere along yeah. the line, things got twisted. We wrote the song, and then she saw Don McLean say, oh, yeah, I could see where this song is, you know, fits into that rather than the other way around her being inspired by McLean, then inspiring them to write the song. Despite the fact that there's much evidence to the contrary, that, uh, the timeline is as she, she put it. Um, in fact, it got to a point where Don McLean, who was very proud of the fact that he was the inspiration for this great big hit song and lovely tune had on his website, the story behind the song, uh, Fox and Gimple threatened to sue him if he didn't take down that reference and then Don McLean, who we noted in episode one, uh, has his business affairs in order. Not a guy who's going to be pushed around by anybody or told what to do. And has probably saved every receipt from every meal he's ever had in his life. Said, so, well, <laughs> yeah. oh, really? Is that uh, so? Here's here's an interview from 73 in print where you said exactly what I said. And there's recorded evidence that that proves them wrong. Yet they still were trying to refute her version of events in the 90s into the 2000s and write her out of the picture. Very str- She has never made a legal claim to songwriting credit. She just wants to, the record to show that they're truth. Yeah, that yeah. Where the song, you know, what the, what the influence the of the origin of the song and, was. Mm-hmm. So it's just, just another example of dirty record company politics and management exploitation of artists that's just yeah. rampant throughout <laughs> the history of popular music. But uh, doesn't dampen the song. It's uh, hit a chord with a lot of people. It's a beautiful song, very jazzy, a lot of chord changes. And uh, you could see Roberta Flack's wonderful ability with a vintage performance clip on YouTube. Of, of there, there's, some, it, there's a lot of interest. There's an older live, uh, like PBS concert recording of Roberta Flack from about 1970 that's, that's on YouTube. And then uh, a vintage one of that song in particular from 73 just a beautiful performance i don't think of roberta flack as having a great voice but it's just a really talented singer understands the dynamics of singing and microphone technique um and of course she always had wonderful groups behind her she was very very exacting very much a perfectionist in how her music was presented uh and very classy artist even though she came out of r&b allegedly her music is very much it's very uh, beautiful. It's refined, beautifully recorded, uh, performed, and sung. That song had 
Life Many Years Later in a cover version by the Fuji, Fugees in 96. Yeah, and that was a too. massive hit for them. Massive number, hit, yeah. Number one, I think, in 20 countries. So mm-hmm. that song has continued to, to live on over the years and continues to resonate. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can also go on go on to YouTube and find performances of Lori Lieberman's right. version. Yeah. You can just envision her watching, listening to Don McLean singing the song Empty Chairs, which is the song that, that she had based the lyrics on. And I mean, you can feel the hurt come across though as much more. I mean, Roberta Flack is a is a seasoned, much older Mature woman, yeah. you know, she's a mature woman. She's got this strong stance, this strong voice, and Laurie Lieberman is, yeah, yeah, much more vulnerable. And it's just, it really does. It's just such a different take on the song. Folkier, it, folkier. It's a, more in a folk vein. Acoustic guitar to the fore, where the piano would be the lead instrument. Um, and Roberta Flack, definitely more jazzy arrangement. Lieberman's more folky. Lieberman's voice, uh, for me, sits kind of between Anne Murray and Judy Collins. She's got a really nice voice, kind of that husk, that Anne Murray husk, and a little more flowery delivery like Judy Collins. Unfortunately, that style of singing became passe pretty quickly uh, Mm -hmm. in the early 70s. Uh, We're talking the heart of the singer-songwriter era when that music was very popular. But but her vocal kind of harkened back a little few years early, more of a 60s kind of style of folk singing. Yeah, I don't think it would have been a hit. Her if they really, you know, yeah. her version would not have resonated like Roberta Flax did. Yeah, a more natural singing style was more au courant, I think, at that time. Um, but her her version's beautiful, and there there's mm-hmm. vintage performance clips of her on the Mike Douglas show uh, talking yeah. about the the inspiration of the song contemporarily with Roberta Flack, uh, and then uh, interviews with her after she came back to music years later, and she just comes across as a real down to earth, very thoughtful, just nice lady, you know, mm-hmm. just to got yeah. steamroller by the business, basically like so many others have over the years. Well, one guy who didn't get steamrolled by the business because he came out of the business end of things, uh, Tony Orlando, who's now looked upon as this kind of clownish seventies relic, but he had a massive hit in 73. He was already a well-known performer at that point. Two hits in the early 70s, Candida and Knock Three Times. Knock Three Times was written by the same people who wrote the song that would be the biggest hit of 73 in the UK and the US called Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree, written by L. Russell Brown and Erwin Levine, who wrote a few other hits for him, uh, for Tony Orlando. Concerns a guy recently released from prison after three years. He's going back to his hometown and he's written his his lady in advance saying, hey, if you want me back in your life, just tie a yellow ribbon around the oak tree in the front of your yard. When the bus goes by, if I see the yellow ribbon there, I know that I'm wanted back in your life. If I don't, I'll just stay on that bus, keep rolling along, and start afresh, start anew. And it's, it's, a, it's a lighthearted song, kind of a throwback to hits of the 20s and 30s. Family friendly, and that was kind of Tony Orlando's whole shtick was music that the the whole family, could, the kids to the grandparents could could hum along and sing along to. Not heavy topics, certainly. Um, no. And then you know he had these big hits with this music, and this is the Nixon era. You know there was a lot of turmoil and strife carrying over from the '60s. A lot of political turmoil. Of course, Watergate was ongoing, and a lot of the music 
rock music reflected that. The singer-songwriter with stuff was turning inward and talking about real personal stuff and challenges. And I think there was just a, a Tony Orlando and a lot of other artists sensed that there was uh, this need for light entertainment and escapist fare. Right. Uh, yeah. So that kind of stuff became very popular in the early set, carrying over to the mid seventies. Uh, likewise, a lot of religious themed music, God rock, um, yeah. like day by day, the Godspell, the musical, oh, Godspell, uh, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, superstar, Jesus Christ the musical. Superstar. Um, Jesus is just all right. Jesus is just all right. Speak to the sky uh, by yeah. Rick Springfield. A lot of people don't know his first hit was kind of a, religious theme song what's another good one uh one tin soldier would that really i don't know if yeah. that really fits it. yeah um but you get the gist of it a lot of these songs became hits in the early 70s 71 72 73 um uh, just people looking for you know a different outlet you know not to be challenged not to be confronted with the issues of the day and the and the the troubles uh but just music is escapism and, mm-hmm. and lighthearted. And that's kind of where Tony Orlando and Don fit in. Now, the, the, the original Tony Orlando and Don hit was actually just credited to Don because Tony Orlando was working in the biz. He was a music executive in the late 60s. He worked in publishing. He, ran, uh, he was an executive of record labels. Uh, at the same time, he's always looking for his own entry into the charts. And uh, he was asked almost as a favor to put a vocal on this song, Candida. Uh, he didn't want his name on it because he didn't want to jeopardize his career if this song was a flop or if his employers didn't care for what he was doing. So it was just credited to Don. Uh, it was basically two backing vocalists and Tony Orlando and then a uh, studio band arrangement. Candida became a hit. Uh, he had another bigger hit with Knock Three Times. At this point, it became Don featuring Tony Orlando. That would probably be my favorite of his hit songs. I think that's the yeah the one that... that it, it has dated the best, let's say. Just a great pop song. Yeah, uh, not, it's a not great song. Time. Yeah. And then uh, Tie Yellow Ribbon became a massive, his biggest hit. Uh, and if you watch, if you go watch the old Tony Orlando Don show, he was the replacement for Sonny and Cher on television with a variety mm-hmm. show. This is back in mid 70s, 74, when variety shows were still big. Ed Sullivan was off the air at this point, but the variety show was still a big form of entertainment. Yeah, you and I have gone back and watched. They're really fun. I mean, they're, they are. They're very they actually hold up. I yes. think it, the humor holds up. I, uh, the music, uh, probably my least favorite part of the show <laughs> is when they sing. <laughs> but it's surprising. I, yeah. I was actually really, I, I was pleasantly surprised by how funny it still is. And I think yeah. Tony Orlando is a very charismatic guy. He's very humble. Yeah. He's, you know, he self-deprecating, very likable. The self-deprecating humor is critical because. You yeah. look back on him, it's just kind of cl- the, the, the tux and the, the hair, the big stash, the open shirt, kind of pudgy, um, the, this lounge act character. And he, he, he kind of, it's like he knew, he knew yeah. that it was kind of a, a goofy persona and he, and he yeah, laughed he at himself. And, and Don, the two singers, uh, Telma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent Skinner, their role on the show was to, you know, to, to make jokes at his expense. They were like right. these sassy black ladies and they actually wrote a lot of good material for those two yeah. um, some real kind of cutting uh sketches where they uh uh you know they were allowed to be themselves they didn't have to be cleaned up versions of themselves you really felt like they feel very natural yeah. yes yeah. yes mm-hmm. uh so there's a lot to really appreciate about that show a lot of really corny dated stuff but yeah. i mean it's just 
just escape is fun. And that's all it was ever meant to be. And it was done very well. You know, uh, th- they continue to have hits. Tony Orlando got uh, into the usual 70s drug stuff and then had a breakdown on stage. Had some traumas in his life, some deaths. Uh, he was really close with Freddie Prinz, the, uh, the, the comedian that committed suicide uh, in 77, just as his career was skyrocketing. Wasn't he uh, Chico and the Man? Right, Chico and the Man. Yeah, but but he was mm-hmm. a, he was a stand up comic. Um, yeah, yeah. Before that, uh, and both of them shared mixed uh, European Puerto Rican heritage. Tony Orlando, Tony Orlando is kind of fascinating. A lot of people probably don't know what his ethnic heritage is. He is actually Greek Puerto Rican, but he's very New York, very New York, very mm-hmm. uh, unpretentious. Um, very New York character, but but the way he was able to poke fun at himself uh, really made the show, I think. I felt that way, too. I actually, um, I really liked Dawn, and they always, and yes. they kind of, yeah. and I'm sure that this probably was uh, portrayed throughout the show, but they, they joke about Dawn, like, what is, like, who's Dawn? Which one is Dawn? You know, <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> and there's, and I'm, I'm guessing that's a running joke that has gone on, you know, throughout the, their careers. I found a funny sketch on Carol Burnett show where they Harvey Corman plays Tony and Carol Burnett and Vicki Lawrence play Dawn. And they do a song called wrap your jammies around the old white pine. <laughs> and actually Tony Orlando and Dawn come on at the end and sort of like pull them off the stage. And Harvey Corman's like pulling on Tony's mustache. Is that real? And his hair. And then he rips off Harvey Corman's wig. And it, it's pretty funny. And then you found a later episode from 76 where he had sly stone on and this is sly definitely getting into his wilderness years he looks spaced out yeah and and tony's like conf- the show is filmed live in front of a studio audience and there's a lot of interaction with that audience in the show which is kind of a mm-hmm. fun aspect of the show too uh he's constantly interacting and getting the audience involved and going out into the audience uh he's very yeah. much a, very much a masterful nightclub performer tori orlando uh but he's got sly stone on, and he's he, and he's confronting sly about his reputation as missing shows and all and really putting him on it's the very spot. uncomfortable very, yeah it was it yes. was yes yeah you're like which way is this gonna go it sly sort of pauses and you don't really know where it's gonna go from there but then he makes a joke about having to set two alarm clocks to be there and then it kind of lightens up and then he says something like and um where's share Making a reference to Sonny and Cher. That's like, oh, okay. You want want to talk about a fascinating character, Sly Stone, definitely one. The guy is still out there, and apparently he's been recording music constantly over the decades, but just can't deal with the business. Anyhow, uh, yeah, so Tony Orlando would die. Wouldn't be one of. Sly was one of the few musical uh, musicians that they had on that show, actually, and it wasn't until 76, the last year. They run 74 to 76. The 76 season, they had Alice Cooper. And that's actually a really interesting clip if you find that on YouTube. <laughs> I'll have to seek that it's out, It's very too. spacey. They do, like, weird effects. It's theatrical, of course, and very kind of avant-garde. And it just seems really out of place for that show. <laughs> and he did have... He had Johnny Cash on. I couldn't find that clip. But there was only the, that a handful of musicians that he ever had on as guests. So I've only watched the first two, three episodes and he had like old school Hollywood guests like Jackie, Jackie Gleason and Danny, Danny Thomas. Yeah. Nancy Walker was on one of the first, first episodes, but uh, yeah, Tony Orlando is definitely in that old school vein of the, Mm -hmm. you know, like the classic 
nightclub performer of the 60s and 50s and carried that into the the 70s. I think he he really wanted to be a part of that classic Hollywood world, um, which was interesting to me. But uh, yeah, so that there's our two songs from 73. Uh, Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Number one, UK, US, UK for a month that year. Killing me softly with this song. Two straight record of the year Grammys for Roberta Flack for that one. Of course, the drama behind it. Those would not be our choices personally, though, for 1970. 1973, yeah. oh, so much great music. And you yeah. look at the list of stuff that can, uh, just start at the first week of 1973. The first week in January. Same week. Debut albums from Aerosmith and Bruce Springsteen. The same week. Ah. <laughs> Aerosmith's yep. self-titled debut and Greetings from Asbury Park, Bruce Springsteen. That's just the beginning of 1973. Mm-hmm. Two months, yeah. Uh, a month later, uh, you've got Tyranny Mutation, Blue Oyster Cult, their second, which is a killer. And uh, the next week, Raw Power by the Stooges, foundation stone of punk rock music. Then how about March 1st of 73? Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Todd Rundgren's A Wizard of True Star, John Cale's Paris 1919, all came out on the same day. What? Wow. Come on now. <laughs> so if, day. I'm, if I'm picking an album for 73, I still got to go with Dark Side of the Moon. First CD I ever bought uh, back in 87. It's it's just hard not to choose that. It, it, it only was number one for one week, but stayed on the Billboard Top 200 for, I think, 731 consecutive weeks. Which set, ever, set a record. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And still something that kids to this day are discovering and loving and it, it lives on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would definitely be up there for me. I was I was debating between that Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, like you said, so many great albums came out that year. So many influential albums in my life. Band on the Run and Ringo both came out that year. Uh, two of the best so- Beatles solo albums. But I think for myself, I would have to say the most, at least the the album that made the most impact in my life, and it also, once again, not in 1973 when it came out, but later as a teenager, was The Who, Quadrophenia. Yes. Yes. Um, that might be number two on my list. I just, Yeah, I think we both had the yeah. same one and two <laughs> as far as our list goes. I think the reasoning for me, uh, Quadrophenia is not my favorite Who album maybe two or maybe three behind uh, who's next number one for sure. And uh, Tommy, I might rank slightly ahead, although that I would have to listen to them back to back to tell you for sure on that. Um, yeah. I could sing along to Tommy from start to finish Quadrophenia. I'm not at that level. Um, right. But the music on Quadrophenia is phenomenal. Uh, it sounds, I mean the title track, the instrumental Quadrophenia, that's something mm-hmm. like you test, you test stereo equipment out with. It's, I mean, it right. sounds that good. Yeah. And it was recorded quadraphonic, yeah. you know, that, and that was like a whole new technology that they were working with there. And yeah, I mean, just as a whole, yes, Tommy often cited as the first rock opera and works together as a whole. Quadrophenia is so much more complex musically, especially, but also lyrically in the story behind it. And it just, it's one of those, teenage angst that resonated so much with me in my high school years and beyond that I just it's it's an album that will is near and dear to my heart we're going to talk um, more about your love of the who I'm sure on future <laughs> we'll episodes so I, I mean sure. I'm fascinated by uh, you love the who and you love rush and those are two bands that yes. not a lot of women get into 
Um, that is true. In fact, we'll, Keith Townsend, yeah. I, there's a funny, I found this little interview clip where he's talking about his audience and, you know, the Who's audience, but also him as a solo artist and how that's generally men. And he's, and there's some women in the audience that are cheering like, hey, we're here too. And he's like, well, there's only one thing I can say. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say he, yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> very few of his songs were speaking to women directly. <laughs> he was very, very much speaking to a certain type of male in a lot of his lyrics. Um, yeah. But the music is incredible. Obviously, it should appeal to everybody. Um, oh, yeah. And Quadrophenia, I think musically, is their best album. Yeah. I, I, could, I, just... I would not dispute that. And one thing I read into recently that I, I hadn't heard before is that it was like Keith Moon's return to being Keith Moon because... Uh, apparently in the making of who's next, Glenn Johns very much, and maybe Pete Towns as well, tried to rein him in, rein him get him in. to be a little more, uh, a little more fundamental with his percussion. And Quadrophini was back to him just all over the kit, just all out. Yeah. His natural, natural self. And of course there's the great story about them touring Quadrophini in one of their first shows in the U S where he, uh, overdid it. <laughs> and a kid came out of the stands and finished the show on the drums. Some 19 year old yeah, kid. Yeah. Um, and they had all kinds of technical difficulties yeah. on that tour because there's so many backing tracks with all the, you know, that they were trying to incorporate into the live show. And it just oftentimes didn't work like it should. So we got to pick our favorite songs from 73 as well. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to stay in the soul vein and I'm going to go with a song called Show and Tell, uh, which was a number one hit for Al Wilson. He was a journeyman R&B soul singer from LA, had minor hits before and nothing that really troubled the top 40 too much and then show and tell is just this just great beautiful record uh the bridge in particular just kills me where it just kind of gets goes off into space a little bit with these uh bum, 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 backing vocals and then when his voice comes back in it's at a higher register than he'd been previously that kind of fades back in to the chorus it's just a beautiful moment um love the song always have uh, I've played it since I was a little kid, since uh, about the time it came out. Uh, and that, that would probably be my pick for, for 73. My pick for 73. Uh, once again, I have to go back to a song that was memorable to me as a kid uh, because it was in also in my mom's record collection. And uh, that would be John Denver, Rocky Mountain High. Oh, yeah. Maybe his best. Great song. Great yeah. album, really. That's the one that I think have I definitely have the most memories attached to. Yeah, probably his best song. And we would have heard a yeah. lot of Jen, John Denver in our house as well. The one John Denver song that sticks out for me that I remember hearing as a kid is Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that certainly got playtime on the turntable in the record household. Uh, and then, you know, show and tell wouldn't have been something my parents would have been particularly into, but I definitely was uh, on the mm -hmm. records I had as a little kid on my turntable. Um, and it's certainly Dark Side of the Moon was not part of our household universe. No. Definitely not. Oh my God. Definitely we lived not. in such a different world. My parents did. Yes. That would have never <laughs> entered their consciousness. <laughs> that would have been that would have been high school when that one entered my world, yeah. starting on cassette tape. And then uh, the very first CD I bought when I got my CD player uh, toward the end of my senior year of high school in 87 would have been Dark Side of the Moon. In fact, first Dark five... Dark Side of the Moon and Tommy yeah. were the first two I bought. Mm -hmm. I think first five CDs for me were, were Dark Side, uh, Who's Next, Doors mm -hmm. Self-Titled, 
Green River by Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I want to say Sergeant Pepper was probably the fifth, because I think I got that right around the, the time it was released, which would yeah, have been... Yeah, 87, I think, yeah, is when all the Beatles... Ju- yeah. yeah, that was released exactly uh, 20 years after the original mm-hmm. album was released. That's same, true. Same yeah. week, really, early June. Uh, and I believe I got it, if not the week released, then the next week. Uh, and then, of course, around that time, I would have discovered Silver Platters, because uh got my CD player at Magnolia Hi-Fi, and they gave you the... Uh, the 10% off, 10 CDs. Or, or the the bucks the the uh, what did we call those things the uh, silver certificates silver yeah. certificates and that opened the door and the rest is history I ended up working there years later um, mm-hmm. but yeah so those uh, those are our picks for seventy three but our playlist has now reached three songs we've got American Pie from seventy two we've got Killing Me Softly with his song and Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Olo Tree from seventy three. On our next episode, we'll jump ahead to 1974, and we will expand the playlist by four songs. And this time, a couple of hits from that year and two songs that I dig a lot. Um, And then we will each pick one of our own favorites to add to the playlist. And this list will keep expanding exponentially as we go through the years into the 80s. Uh, So we hope you'll join us for that next episode, 1974. Uh, So until then... This has been Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent Playlist. I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. And we'll see you next time.